funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, it's official. New Jersey's MetLife Stadium will host the FIFA 2026 World Cup Final. The international sports spectacle is expected to draw millions of fans and dollars to the state. And the idea that we were hosting the, the final right here at MetLife Stadium, I said it yesterday on a great Sunday. It is the whipped cream, the cherry, and some wet walnuts on a fabulous Sunday. Plus, a war of words in the District 8 race. Congressman Rob Menendez and Hoboken Mayor Ravi Bala square off on social media. It appears to be giving Bala a fundraising edge. This is an indication that nobody's going to let anybody come up for air at any point in time without answering it back. Also, Trenton police are under fire for their alleged use of force towards a homeless black man. And what we saw in that video from that officer shows us we have a whole lot of work to do in the soul of the city of Trenton. And Rutgers is on the verge of a COVID-19 treatment breakthrough that could work on future drug-resistant strains. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Talk about a score. New Jersey is the chosen host for the 2026 FIFA World Cup Final. It's a major victory for the Garden State and the MetLife Stadium in the Meadowlands where the match will be played. The announcement came Sunday after the Murphy administration spent more than two years wooing the soccer's world governing body, leveraging MetLife Stadium's proximity to Manhattan and all that goes with it, beating out reported frontrunner AT&T Stadium in Dallas and the SoFi Stadium in L.A. The final is scheduled for July 19, 2026, marking the end of a tournament that will span three countries and see a total of 104 matches. New Jersey was also awarded five opening round games and two during the knockout stage. State leaders are calling it a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the state and region with a major economic boost anticipated. For more on that and the announcement, I'm joined by one of the many leaders behind New Jersey's win, Jim Kirkos, the CEO at the Meadowlands Chamber of Commerce. Jim Kirkos, good to see you. Uh, a congratulations is in order. How big a deal is this for New Jersey? I can't tell you how big of a deal. I can't take my scarf off. It's amazing. Yeah, so talk to me about the economic impact because, of course, for soccer fans, it's a big deal to have the notoriety, but this is going to draw thousands and thousands of spectators. Uh, listen, we, you know, the, the, the fact that we have eight games stretched out over four or five weeks is just amazing because it, the ability for us to bring in groups of people and for corporations to entertain and for us to showcase New Jersey and, and the greater Meadowlands region that I represent is just so powerful with, with the brand of the FIFA World Cup. And the idea that we were hosting the, the final right here at MetLife Stadium, I said it yesterday 
on a great Sunday. It is the whipped cream, the cherry, and some wet walnuts on a fabulous Sunday. Well, clearly this is something that yourself, the administration, a lot of folks have been working for for a few years now, and you all felt pretty confident going into it. But just take me through the moment when the announcement came. Did you have any indication beforehand? No, no indication at all. And quite frankly, I wasn't real. I wasn't that confident. I was, I was cautiously optimistic that we could that we could be uh, granted the final. But you know, we were up against some stiff competition. The Dallas Stadium is a, spe is a spectacular facility, uh, and uh, you know, and and but 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 at the end of the day, we checked off more boxes uh, than Dallas did uh, for everything that we put on here. And I got to give a lot of credit to Governor Murphy and his team. You know, my organization plays a small role. They were leading this. He's been all in on trying to get this uh, final here from the very beginning, and uh, they did a fabulous job. Walk me through the preliminary figures. How much are we anticipating this will generate in revenue, amount of jobs, and how do you plan on keeping the bulk of that in New Jersey? So uh, FIFA announced yesterday that it's, it, the FIFA World Cup in the United States is a $2 billion economic impact. Uh, and we plan on, on trying to capture that. Our, our task here for, for New Jersey and New York is to make sure people and visitors from all over the globe understand just all that there is to do here. So we got to be got to be really good at our marketing. We got to be really good at social media. We got to make sure people know where they can spend their discretionary dollars here in, the, in, in for my job in the Greater Meadowlands area. And the fact of the matter is, Brianna, we're a better destination today than we've ever been. Are there any lessons, Jim, from hosting the Super Bowl that you plan on taking into this big event? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and one we've thought a lot about because every time we do a big event. There's always a couple of naysayers that say, well, we didn't realize the economic impact. I'm of the school that says we can't just expect people to walk through our door, right? But just because the game is in town, we need to be really good at activating our local communities and letting the world know what we have to offer here. If we do that better this time, we're going to capture a tremendous amount of economic impact. Speaking of that, how do you separate the New Jersey from the New York? Because just about every national media outlet is advertising this as the New York region. So how do you make sure that New Jersey gets the prominence it deserves? And that's that's my task. Uh, we, we need to be we need to be really sharp at, at all of those items. The fact of the matter is we have a great collaboration with New York City. I'm not so sure we get this final game here without being next to the greatest city in the world. Uh, but the fact that we are a, 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 a budding destination all by ourselves in New Jersey, there's lots of reasons to keep people here. We'll, we'll always kind of be the, the sister to New York City when it comes to this in this media market. But we have a lot to offer. Uh, uh, Jersey City, Hoboken, Weehawken, the greater Meadowlands area. There's so many great places to dine, to stay, to shop, to experience, to be entertained. And, and our job will be to tell that story over the next couple of years so we can capture as much as possible. Jim Kirkos is the CEO of the Meadowlands Chamber of Commerce. Jim, good to talk to you. Great talking to you as well. Thank you. Well, what started as an online political spat between two congressional candidates has erupted into an all-out war of words. Incumbent Democratic Representative Rob Menendez and his opponent, Hoboken Mayor Ravi Bala, are in the midst of a nasty fight on social media, and neither side is pulling punches as we near the June primary. Both are vying for the seat in Hudson County's 8th Congressional District. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, Bala appears to have the edge, at least when it comes to fundraising.
It's gloves off, knives out online in the 8th Congressional District race. Incumbent Rob Menendez started it last week, slamming his opponent for unethically doing a political interview at Hoboken City Hall, where Ravi Bala's the mayor. Challenger Bala shot back, wow, the entitled son of corrupt Bob Goldbar Menendez trying to lecture me about ethics. They're still at it. And his father used his weight and influence to give his son a congressional seat. That is nepotism, rank nepotism at its worst. That's where he's going to want to pivot every single time. He's not going to want to address his own failures as mayor, his own ethical issues. Menendez says a couple of city council members blew the whistle on Bala, who admits he shouldn't have done a political interview inside City Hall. We did this one on the sidewalk. I do concede the tone is not what voters deserve, but I would like to see more on the substance so we can show people how we are different. We're proud of how we've represented the 8th Congressional District. That's what we want to talk about. But again, we're not going to let him set a false narrative about who we are and the work that we're doing. Hudson View correspondent John Hines posted Rock'em Sock'em Robots after Monday's round one in the online political boxing match. You hit each other till somebody's head pops off and that's pretty much what they were doing on this exchange to the bolder, bigger point, though, I mean, him and Ravi just really don't like each other. And um, I don't think either side is going to give an inch between now and June. I think this is an indication that nobody's going to let anybody come up for air at any point in time without answering it back. Right as Micah Rasmussen says each candidate's vying for voter attention, Rob Menendez is a first-term incumbent, and while he scored the coveted endorsement of Hudson County's powerful Democratic political machine, it abandoned his father after Senator Bob Menendez's latest indictment on corruption charges. What's in a name? Even though Rob Menendez is not on trial, they have the same name, and that's, I think, alone is quite problematic. How many voters in the 8th District even know that there's two Menendez's? Probably not a lot. Bala served as mayor here for six years and sees an opening to take down the Menendez dynasty. His campaign's collecting money from small donors and early fundraising shows some stunning figures. Bala raised $974,000 in the fourth quarter of last year. That's almost triple the 348000 incumbent Menendez brought in. It's a historic, Rasmussen says. Nobody who has ever run for the House in New Jersey before has raised as much money as he did in his first quarter. It tells me that as Menendez was putting together the pieces, it wasn't enough to stave off the sense that he was vulnerable the sense that he could be beaten. Bala's got about 915000 in cash on hand now, with Menendez behind by more than 200000 Much of the incumbent's donations come from major players and PACs. In politics, money talks, but the county machine can still make it rain for Menendez. Moreover, it doesn't look like this district has ever elected anyone off the line. I would say the organizational edge goes to Menendez so far, and Bala's got his work cut out for him between now and June. Expect a rock'em sock'em campaign. In Hoboken, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. The Trenton Police Department is facing scrutiny over use of force tactics again, less than four months after the Department of Justice launched a federal civil rights investigation into the unit over the practice. Officers have been accused of routinely using excessive force and illegally stopping pedestrians. This time, the Capital City's NAACP chapter is speaking out against an early January incident involving law enforcement and a homeless man that advocates say shows the city 
is failing its most vulnerable residents. Ted Goldberg has the story. I don't want to do the report. I don't want to lock you up. I don't want to put you in cuffs. I want you to grab your and walk the off. I'm telling you to my brother, you say how. I don't care. A Trenton police officer has come under fire for how he interacted with a homeless man last month. Body cam footage shows the policeman shoving a homeless man during an argument. In the video, you can hear officers shouting at the man who says he was visiting his brother's apartment. This was an officer who valued his own time over that of a man who was clearly in need of help. You judge a society by how well or how poorly it treats its most vulnerable citizens. And what we saw in that video from that officer shows us we have a whole lot of work to do in the soul of the city of Trenton. Such behavior has the chilling effect of eroding trust between law enforcement and the community that they serve. Trenton's chapter of the NAACP spoke today and called for Mayor Reed Gashora to investigate the footage and take that police officer away from working the streets. We are not against law enforcement officers. They are a part of the fabric of how we repair, rebuild, and restore our communities. But what we are against is officers who enroll in wealthier white communities like Pennington, Hopewell, Robbinsville, Princeton. None of these residents would ever be treated this way. Police Director Steve Wilson says the officer's behavior wasn't ideal, but he doesn't think any laws were broken. The officer could have been a little less rude at one point, but but he didn't do anything wrong. Wilson says the policeman started becoming aggressive with the homeless man because he didn't follow the officer's orders. Every property owner has um, a right to be secure in their property. And this guy was trespassing. The officer was trying to convince him to leave. He would not leave behind the story of uh, his brother living in the upstairs apartment. The NAACP is calling for Trenton to change how it responds to distress calls, even though this was originally a call about illegal dumping. Advocates say community groups should be responding rather than police officers, something Wilson doesn't necessarily disagree with. So in instances which are quality of life, mental health, substance use issues, it's better to have brothers like these showing up who care about people. We can't force people to go to crisis. You know, we can't force people to take shelter with a service. You know, we can't do that, but we offer it. So and that's, that's specifically why um, I created the daytime task force two years ago. Other cities have seen success with Arrive Together, a program that pairs mental health professionals with policemen for certain 911 calls. Wilson says he'd like to see Trenton be a part of that. But you got to have the resources to do that, you know, and so uh, I don't I'm not in charge of those resources, but it will certainly be explored by me and I'm not against it at all. Um, it's not something that I that um, I didn't hear of. Um, it's something that I did inquire about and if I can get it here, then then I'll be glad to do it. Wilson says supervisors have reviewed the body cam footage and he doesn't think the officer should be disciplined for his actions. Something sure to disappoint advocates who are calling for consequences. In Trenton, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Rutgers researchers say they're on the verge of a potential COVID-19 treatment breakthrough that could work on future drug-resistant strains of the virus and supplement or replace Paxlovid. That's the medication currently used to prevent death and hospitalizations in high-risk patients. 
It comes as a study by the National Center for Health Statistics and the Census Bureau suggests up to 14% of all adults in New Jersey meet the criteria for long COVID after initial infection. It's a nebulous list of symptoms that can linger for months or longer. COVID also remains the nation's third leading cause of death, and researchers say there's a massive need for more treatment options. For the latest, I'm joined by one of the lead researchers, Associate Professor June Wang. <music> Professor June Wang, thanks so much for coming on the show. So talk to me about how this medication targets the COVID-19 virus in a way that other antivirals aren't. So currently, the most prescribed oral COVID drug is called Paxlovid, which is developed by Pfizer. However, the two main problems associated with Paxlovid, one is a drug-drug interaction problem. So for patients with underlying diseases and also taking other medications, Paxlovid cannot be used. So this is one major problem. Another potential problem is drug-resistant issues. And the researchers have found that uh, viruses can evolve to become resistant to Paxlovid. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about, because at the moment, we don't have a drug-resistant strain of this virus. But researchers like yourself are worried about that happening in the future, yes, as we do with most viruses? Yes, you are 100% correct. Uh, so far, the good news is that uh, resistance has not been widespread yet. However, like I mentioned, uh, as scientists, uh, we always want to plan ahead of time. And as we learn from the lessons for the use of HIV and HCV antiviral drugs, uh, is, resistance is not a question of if, but a question of what. So we had better address the resistance issue before they become uh, widespread. Yeah, so that we're not caught flat-footed uh, like we were when this virus uh, first broke out. So uh, I'm curious, though, because you mentioned Paxlovid. It's not prescribed that often. Uh, and so would this medication that you're working on, it's obviously not uh, to market level yet, uh, be more prescribable because it has less side effects? So this is with a practical use of antivirus, and they should only be prescribed to people who most need them. And generally speaking, for people with a competent immune system, antivirus probably not needed. But like I mentioned before, right, for seniors and people with underlying diseases and people at high risk of COVID-associated complications, those people, yes, they do need to take antivirus. How soon, Professor, might we see this come to market and what will it mean um, as we continue to battle against COVID? Thanks. So uh, this is still in the early stage of development. It need to go through extensive animal model studies and also pharmacokinetic uh, kinetic studies. Then uh, hopefully we'll move to a human clinical trials. But we're doing as fast as we can. The good news is that from our preliminary study in cell culture and also animal model studies, the papain-like protease inhibitor, which are the ones we're developing as the next generation of COVID oral drugs, they have shown consistent and promising antiviral activity against the Delta and Omicron SARS-CoV-2 variants. And more importantly, they're also active against the uh, resistant viruses uh, against uh, Paxlovid, which means they can be used for the 
treatment of infections uh, caused by Paxlovid uh, resistant virus. Wow, so potentially really breakthrough research here. Dr. Jun Wang is an associate professor of medicinal chemistry at Rutgers University. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Environmental groups aren't wasting any time during this new legislative session holding a press conference today at the State House to lay out an environmental policy agenda for lawmakers, including securing a 100% clean energy future and safeguarding clean drinking water, among other things. As senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports, the event comes as state senators consider pulling state funds out of fossil fuel companies. This is no longer about the future generations. We are dealing with climate change today. A group of environmental advocates joined with several of New Jersey's Democratic legislators today to outline their environmental agenda for the next two legislative sessions. These are bold, high reach priorities. These are not easy things. The goals include five key areas. The first, reaching 100% clean energy by 2035, a goal that's been prioritized by the Murphy administration, but never codified into law. It failed to move forward during the last legislative session. The energy master plan changes every time there's a new administration. It's being done by executive order. And the point of this bill is to put the 100% renewable energy standard in New Jersey statute. To help reach that goal, advocates emphasized the need for an upgraded energy grid to handle the state's growing solar and electric needs. They made their case in front of the Senate Environment and Energy Committee that met later in the morning. The grid was built in the last century. We're in now 2024. We need to build a grid for the 21st century. We cannot move forward with our existing solar projects, our existing storage projects, without having this grid modernization. Other agenda items, reducing transportation pollution and preserving parks and open spaces. They pointed to the sunsetting of the corporate business tax surcharge at the end of last year that taxed companies whose profits are a million dollars or more. And it was generating um, $78 million uh, a year. So for open space preservation, we're looking at a cut right now of $48 million this year. And another priority, same-day voter registration. Not something you might expect at an environment presser, but one that's integral to electing officials who will best represent communities of color most impacted by environmental justice issues, says Assemblywoman Verlina Reynolds-Jackson. I need your support for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act of New Jersey, but it means nothing if we don't have those in office to make sure that we are, have the ability to effectuate change. But getting elected officials to pass some of these measures has been a challenge. Two bills came up for discussion only in today's Senate hearing that might be the toughest to move forward. One would have New Jerseyans vote on amending the state constitution to prohibit the construction of new fossil fuel power plants in the state. Another would prohibit the state from investing state pension and annuity funds into any of the 200 largest publicly traded fossil fuel companies. The UN Secretary General has declared that the business model of fossil fuel companies is incompatible with human survival. And that is especially true for people living and dying from fossil fuels in New Jersey's environmental justice communities like the Ironbound, Kearney, and Camden. Those bills had mixed reaction with environmental advocates in support and business and industry experts opposed. We should not be looking to use our pension funds as a lever to enact uh, public policy. 
you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to return as much investment as we can to our pension system. Um, we are currently facing a 75 to $80 billion um, pension deficit. Those bills are not yet up for a vote, although several other bills focused on energy investments did move out of committee today, and many more are likely to be posted in the months to come. In Trenton, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report, a new life for one of the state's beleaguered nursing homes. The owners of Limecrest Subacute and Rehabilitation Center on Thursday sold the Sussex County facility, complying with a state order to either remain open under new ownership or close. Judy Kushner of Bemet LLC, which is a for-profit company, took over immediately, according to the State Department of Health. Kushner has stakes in several other rehab and nursing centers in the region. The state comptroller last month suspended Limecrest from New Jersey's Medicaid program, citing a litany of violations there and at another facility under the same ownership. The state previously shut that down. In November, the department halted admissions at Limecrest after a deadly COVID-19 outbreak killed seven residents and infected dozens of others. The center was also hit with a lengthy list of serious health and safety violations. Turning to Wall Street, stocks tumbled after the Federal Reserve took a March interest rate cut off the table. Here's how markets closed for the day. And that does it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. If you need to see a doctor, RWJ Barnabas Health has two easy ways to do it from anywhere. You can see an urgent care provider 24-7 on any device with our Telemed app. Or use our website to book a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health medical group provider or specialist, even as a new patient. You've taken every precaution, and so have we. So don't delay your care any longer. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.